You know, we've been in this series called Open Your Eyes, and this has been a really phenomenal series, a challenging series for me. I think I've cried every single Sunday that we have talked about. I'm pretty sure Russ Walker has cried every single Sunday. Uh, I don't think Brent did, um, but you <laughs> laughed a lot. You laughed a lot uh, with Brent. And so, so th- we're, we're talking about being attentive to the opportunities, the opportunities around us. We're talking about being attentive to the marginalized. We're talking about opening our eyes to those who are in great need. We're talking about making sure we're living out the whole gospel, not just part of the gospel, not just the believing part. We're not just living salvation as a get out of hell free card. We're talking about bringing God's kingdom into the earth, bringing heaven to earth. That's what this series is really about, and opening our eyes to see what's around us, to act and make a difference in our world. And so we've been reading Isaiah 58 from the Message Bible, which is the modern day translation in each message that we've done. So let's pray, and then let's uh, read this passage together. Father, would you open our eyes? Would you open our hearts once again? Would you help us to listen and then to apply and then to obey? Lord, we look to you today and we allow the scriptures to illuminate our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 58, verse one says, shout a full-throated shout. Hold nothing back. A trumpet blast shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family, Jacob, with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right-living people, law-abiding, God-honoring. They, they ask me what's the right thing to do and love having me on their side, but they also complain. Why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line on your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time, you bicker and you fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast day that I'm after? A day to show off humility? To put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting a fast day that I, God, would like? This is the kind of fast day I'm after. To break the chains of injustice. Get rid of exploitation in the workplace. Free the oppressed. Cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this and the lights will turn on and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. And then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help and I'll say, here I am. If you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims, quit gossiping about other people's sins. If you are generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. 
I will always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places. Firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew. Rebuild the foundations from out of your past. I love that part, by the way, that he builds new things, not out of new things, but out of the past. He takes what we've been through and he makes something new out of it. He says, if, if, he says, you'll be known, you'll use old rubble of past lives to build anew, rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. If you watch your step on the Sabbath and don't use my holy day for personal advantage, if you treat the Sabbath as a day of joy, God's holy day as a celebration, in other words, if you'll worship, if you'll use your worship not just for yourself, but to listen to me, to realize that others are, in, are involved here, that there's something I want you to do. He says, if you honor it by refusing business as usual, making money, running here and there, then you'll be free to enjoy God. Oh, and I'll make you ride high and soar above it all. I'll make you feast on the inheritance of your ancestor Jacob. Yes, God says so. I love this passage. It's getting down into my soul. I want it to get into the heart and life of our church, into every community, into each of our neighborhoods, what we will carry this idea. And I want you to notice what Isaiah is saying to God's people here in their context is, if you'll do these things, if you'll practice these things, your life will be awesome. I'll take care of you if you'll take care of others. That's what he's saying. And I'll look at this. There are eight practical and tangible things that God tells us to do in this passage. Just look at them. Eight practical and tangible things. That's your first fill in the blank on your message notes if you'd like to follow along. These are practical and tangible things. These are not ethereal, you know, spiritual or vague things. He says, feed the hungry. Number two, invite the homeless poor into your home. Number three, put clothes on those who are without. Number four, be available to your family. One translation says, be available to the family members in need or don't, don't hide from the family members in need. Number six, give yourself to the down and out. Number seven, keep the Sabbath holy. Number eight, honor God in all that you do. These are things that we must find ways to put into practice in our personal lives and in our church. Jesus actually emphasizes the very same idea of practical and tangible actions that reflect our love for God in Matthew 25. Let's look there. Matthew 25, verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus is addressing the eternal ramifications of these very actions. Now check this out. Jesus is saying in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. 
I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. I want you to notice in this passage that it wasn't clear that they'd done this for Jesus. To, like they did it out of some natural predisposition. They did it as a second, sort of a second nature, kind of a, a thing, and they didn't realize what was really happening here. Verse 41, we pick up the story that Jesus is telling, and he says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick in, or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I want you to notice the connection that Jesus is making as there are eternal ramifications for what we're talking about. Verse 40 and verse 45 really crystallizes it. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. And whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. As we talked about it last week, I just want to remind you of it, that the way we love the least is the way we measure our love for Jesus. That's what Jesus is essentially saying. He's saying, you, you demonstrate how much you love me when you love people in great need. I think these verses could be paraphrased this way. This is a little hard hitting, but I, I think we, we, we just need to go all the way to it. He says, for I was hungry while you had all you needed and threw out all your leftovers. I was thirsty, but you drank bottled water without a second thought. I was a stranger and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more brand name clothes to keep up with the trends. I was sick and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison and you said I was getting what I deserved. God's people must never do or say these things. What we need to do is demonstrate who God really is. And so you see the discrepancy here. You see the inconsistency. If our so-called faith doesn't match how we live our lives, if our spirituality doesn't have roots in practices and tangible things that we're willing to do, how we treat people in need around us, our witness is destroyed and our eternal life is in jeopardy. I heard this illustration, and it's pretty telling. 
So I want you to go with me on this picture. Whenever a major jetliner crashes anywhere in the world, it inevitably sets off a worldwide media frenzy covering right, uh, every aspect of the tragedy. Now imagine for a moment that you woke up one day and you read the following headline, 100 jetliners crash, killing 26,500 people. And think of the pandemonium that would be created across the world as heads of, of state and parliaments and Congress convene to grapple with what caused the tragedy. Think about the avalanche of media coverage. It would just be overwhelming. Think about how air travel would grind to a halt as a government shutdown would happen with airlines and panicked air travelers would cancel their trips and the National Transportation Safety Board, perhaps the FBI, the CIA, local law enforcement agencies, their international equivalents would all spring into action investigating, dedicating manpower to understand what happened and prevent it from happening again. Now imagine that the very next day, 100 more planes crashed and 100 more the next, and the next, and the next. It's, of course, unimaginable that that could ever happen, but it did, and it does. It happened today, and it happened yesterday. It will happen again tomorrow, but there was no media coverage. No heads of state, parliaments, or Congress stopped what they were doing to address the crisis, and no investigations were launched, yet more than 26,500 children died yesterday of preventable causes related to their poverty. And it will happen again today, and tomorrow, and the day after that. Almost 10 million children will be dead in the course of a year. So why does the crash of a single plane dominate the attention of everyone? Why does it... Why does it, the, world, the newspapers across the world, while the equivalent of 100 planes filled with children crashing daily, why does it never reach our ears? And even though we now have awareness and access and ability and technology, perhaps one reason why it doesn't cross our minds is because these kids who are dying are not our kids. We're not close enough. They're somebody else's. This story is not meant to create guilt or shame, but to invite some aspect of evaluation of our own hearts and how we tend to not see even the people that are nearest us or closest to us. In the book, Compassion Fatigue, Susan Muller offered this as an explanation. She says, in the news business, one dead fisherman in Brooklyn is worth five English bobbies who are worth 50 Arabs who are worth 500 Africans. You see what she's saying? She, the tendency is for us to have less empathy for people who are not directly related to us. The farther out they get, the less we think about them. What a terrible equation, what a terrible even way to think, but I think she's accurate, especially when it comes to the news business. But I think Susan, she was right in her assessment that sometimes we are compassion fatigued, and even in our own country with so many things that are so good, we are compassion fatigued with, with stuff that's thrown at us through the news or the newspapers, and this list of tragedies and atrocities seem endless, war and famine and natural disasters and disease, it's relentless, each day there's more, and so I think it's really true. We kind of get compassion fatigue, and so in response, in order to deal with the world that we live in, we just 
just kind of close in. We bury our heads. We put blinders on and get absorbed in our daily lives. That's all we can take. Very often, I think we simply divert our eyes from the pain and suffering that's right around us. But I want to, here's what I want to challenge you with today. I think an even worse condition exists. An even worse condition than compassion fatigue. And I would call it becoming a compassion skeptic. I would call it becoming compassion averse. And this happens because many times of our bad experiences of trying to help people and how we end up suffering for it or we end up it's not, it doesn't work or nothing changes or so, it just never seems to amount to anything. It's just a black hole. And so when we try, and some of you have come and talked to me in this series and I've talked to you after service and you've said things like, um, so I've tried to do this and it just seems like it's just, I can't figure out how to make it work. It just seems empty. The, 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 the people take advantage of me and it just, it's just, I don't know where the boundaries are. And listen, this is really an important question. So I want to address this question. Before I left for the summer, I wanted to give you a perspective of how Jesus, I think, answers this, these questions. And I wanna, I wanna address it by asking three questions that we all ask, all right? Because when you're trying to help people in need, sometimes it really becomes more difficult than you ever thought it would be. When you try to help people in need, it becomes all-consuming sometimes. And so you're afraid to even touch it. You're fearful that of what might happen to you and, and your busy life. And these are really legit questions. These are not wrong-headed questions. These are worthy of us spending a little time and asking the question. Number one question, what if they take advantage of me? What if they take advantage of me when I try to help people? I'm gonna look to John 13, verse one through 17. I want you to follow with me here. It was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to his father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Oh, I love that. I love that description. He's worked with these knucklehead disciples for a long time. For three years, they've just been kind of following him around and not getting it. But this verse says he loved them all the way to the end. Verse two, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. I don't want you to see the significance, the contrast between the things we just read. Jesus understood he had all power and all authority. It rested with him. He understood where he was going. And his response to that is profound. Because his response was not to take over. His response was not to do a lot of things that we would think he should do with his power. But when he came to this conclusion, he took a towel and wrapped it around himself and began to wash his disciples' feet. The question for us is when we want authority, we want power, we want spiritual power. The question is, what will we use it for? Ourselves? Others? God's interested in giving it to you. We must be as Jesus was, willing to wash people's feet. Look what happens here. He says, 
In verse five, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? (laughs) Peter, he's so crazy. He's so, he's so boisterous and obnoxious. Verse seven, Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Look, Peter, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said, okay, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, (laughs) it's just, this is kind of the way Peter replies all the time. Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Just put it all on me. I want it all, Jesus. Jesus answered in verse 10, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew, verse 11, who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on uh, on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I want to draw your attention in this story to the fact that Jesus washed the feet of the denier and the betrayer. The one who would deny him and the one who would betray him. It's clear he knew it was coming. And his response to these two men were to wash their feet. How did he do that? I've always wanted to ask, what did Jesus do wrong with Judas? <laughs> Maybe he could have done more. Maybe He didn't do anything wrong with Judas. Judas chose of his own will and Jesus chose to wash his feet. See, I want you to see this. He was, Jesus was not only washing the feet of Peter and Judas to minister to them because it was right, but more importantly and primarily, he was doing it for his father who had sent him. And we see this in verse 16. Very I truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. When you first look at this, you think Jesus is saying, look, I'm your boss. You should do what I tell you to do. But I think if you look a little deeper, you'll see that what Jesus was saying is, I'm, I'm a messenger. I'm the one who was sent. And the way I can do this to the people who would deny me and betray me is because I know who I'm serving. The secret to serving is knowing who you're serving. The secret to serving people well is knowing who you're serving. The only way you and I can serve people in need and not burn out and not get overwhelmed and feel violated by being taken advantage of us is, is if we will know and understand and embrace that we're serving God when we serve the least, that we're serving Jesus when we serve those in need. The right motive for what we do is essential for healthy serving. Listen, all of you on team one, you'll burn out unless you understand that you're not just serving people. You are serving people. When you come in here in the morning and it's dark and early and you're setting up, you are loving people. But make no mistake, if that's your only motivation, you'll burn out. We have to see that what we're doing is for Jesus himself. And I want to make a distinction right here between doing something for a person and 
how we deal with all people. Because sometimes when people take advantage of you, like for instance, if my friend steals 500 bucks from me, a guy that I know, and he steals $500 from me, do I just give him another $500? No, no I, I probably won't. I'll go tell him, hey, you stole this from me and you should give it back, right? The Bible's full of places where when people take stuff from you, 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 you let them have it, all right? You, you don't make a big deal out of it. But here's my point is, dealing with that person as my friend is a different equation than if that person steals from me and I decide I'm never going to get close to anyone again because they'll hurt me. You see, you see the difference. I'm never going to be generous with anyone because they just steal from you. So dealing with a person and walking with that person, there's responsibility, there's um, relationship, there's these dynamics that you walk through with that person and sometimes those are the overwhelming um, uh, parts of the relationship as you're trying to help them in need. But for you to say in your heart, I'm never gonna help anybody else because that was so terrible and that was so violating, that's not what Jesus wants for your heart or mine. And so we have to find our way through and we have to understand that Jesus is the one we're serving and that leads us to our second point, our second question, what if they're mean? <laughs> what if people are mean? You know how Amy and I have learned how to deal with mean people? No, not pastoring a church, but we have learned some from that. But we've learned how to deal with mean people by raising kids. What is it about kids that are so mean? The way they pick on each other in the, in the schoolyard, the way they treat one another in the house, it's shocking. I mean, Amy and I don't treat each other that way. It's just in them. And so we've gotten really good at dealing with mean people. And you just, and you just have to find a way to smile and walk through it and help them see what the right thing to do is. You have to model it for them. The worst thing that we can do as parents is yell back at them. The worst thing we can do is yell and scream and lose our temper. The worst thing we can do for disciplining them and helping them see the way they're supposed to act, the worst thing we can do is act just like them. And that, that sta those statements are not made to provide any guilt for any of you parents. <laughs> But we've all done it. We've all said it. We've all wished we could pull those words back into our mouths, right? But, but Jesus wants us to function in a different way. Look what he says in Luke 6. He says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if everyone, anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Now check this out. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be called children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. What Jesus is saying here is you've been ungrateful and you've been wicked. Remember what I did for you. Keep that in perspective. And then he says, verse 36, be merciful just as your father is 
merciful. Jesus is describing that if that we live differently than everyone else. We reflect these upside down kingdom values and we're motivated to respond to mean people in the very opposite spirit. When they're angry, we give a soft answer. When they're deceptive, we remain innocent. We can do this because the spirit of God lives in us and we can respond to them with the love of Christ. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're my kids. You gotta take my DNA. You gotta, you gotta act like I act. You gotta be like me, like our family. These are our family values and this is our family DNA and this is how we respond to reveal who God is. We show mercy. We're showing people what God is really like. Our mercy reveals God's mercy. Our mercy to others reveals what God's really like. Number three, what if they don't change? <laughs> what if they don't change? The Apostle Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 3, 7 through 9. He says, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are co-workers in God's service. Paul is making the case here that we are not the only ones, no, we're not the ones who actually do the, whole, the, the heavy lifting of helping someone. We got to do the work of planting and watering, but it's the mystery of God. Now think about this. It's the mystery of God that he puts in a seed, that when you do something, when you plant a seed and you plant and it takes soil, it takes sunlight, it takes water, it takes all those things, you put a seed in the ground and you water it and you plant it and you provide care for it. But look, look it is only the mystery that God put in the seed that causes it to grow. No one can make somebody else change. You want to try to change somebody else? Good luck. It's not, you, it, you can work as hard as you want. You can't change anyone. Only Jesus can do that. We got to introduce people to Jesus, love them, serve them, and then leave the rest up to God. Leave it up to him. Well, what if it seems like I never witnessed the transformation? I want to be there for the end. Well, that's not your responsibility, actually. You may never see where the seeds go that you plant. You may never get to witness what you watered. You and I are responsible to plant and water, but we may not see the fruit. But we will, now look, check this out. Look at the scripture. We will be rewarded according to what? According to our labor. Oh, wait a minute. Not according to the results? Not according to all the fruit? Oh, we're, we're rewarded according to our labor, what we were willing to do. And so it takes all the pressure off of us. There's no pressure on you or me. There is just living and serving and loving people because that's what God wants from us. And as we do it, we reflect his heart. Listen, we are too saturated with the ideas of ROI. Return on investment. Return on investment. I just don't think it's worth it. Listen, it's always a bit different in the kingdom of God. ROI is a whole different thing. Don't get hung up on it. Anything done out of guilt causes death. You, do, you try to do stuff out of guilt, it'll just create death in you, not life. 
This is not about the shoulds, right? I'm not trying to give you a case of the shoulds. I should do this, I should do that. This is about co-laboring with God and bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth and bringing God here. Listen, only God can make things grow. And once you believe that, then you can trust him. You can serve with freedom. You can serve with ease. You feel motivated. And when we look at, when we look at all of our, all the people surrounding us, We've got to embrace these motives. We've got to embrace these ways of thinking and living. We've got, to, we've got to grab a hold of God's spirit as we share his life with others. We can't just, we can't just do it out of obligation. It will never, never work. I want this to get into your heart.